Isaiah chapter 11. We're actually going to begin in chapter 10, verse 33. We're going to read through Isaiah 11, verse 5. When you get to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33, give me an oh yeah. If you need a minute, say hold up, brother. All right, just one second. Just one second. Also, I... um, uh, was able to be in the flesh last night. Uh, the gator tail was all that it was imagined to be. The jambalaya and the etouffee was all that it was imagined to be. Uh, I went to Louisiana a little bit last night, thanks to the Lemons family and for their gracious hospitality. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33 reads, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. Father in heaven, would you aid us by sending your spirit to illuminate our minds, our hearts, and our eyes, to perceive the insight that you would have for us today. The timeless truths that are here for us to find great hope and joy in the midst of our current situation. So, Father, I ask that you would bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. As we begin this morning, I think it's helpful if we back up and understand a little context. At this stage in the world, there are three primary world powers. You've got Egypt, you've got Babylon, and you've got Assyria. And then you've got Israel that's nestled right in between all three. To the south, you've got Israel. To the north, you've got Syria and Assyria, and to the east, you've got Babylon, and to the west, they can't go anywhere because they're locked in by water. At this stage in history, you have all three powers jockeying for this one fertile crescent, this one fertile place of soil there in the ancient Near East. And in this particular day and age, you've got Assyria who is knocking on the door. Now, when you think of Assyria, I need you to think about Jonah. Because when God was sending Jonah to Nineveh, Jonah considered that a death sentence because Ninevites were Assyrians. 
And Assyrians were really good at one thing, meeting out death. In fact, the very understanding, concept, and practice of crucifixion was an Assyrian invention. And in this day, Assyria's knocking on the door, and you've got war, and Jerusalem is threatened to be conquered. Now, the other thing about Assyria is Assyria looks a whole lot like Goliath in terms of they seem to be impregnable. They seem to be indefatigable. They seem to be a legion that cannot be conquered. And you've got Israel standing there looking at these, this forest of enemies, questioning and wondering, will they be able to see tomorrow? When you get to this place, the Assyrians are the ones who were there in this particular passage of scripture in the back end of 10 and in 11 happens either in one of two time periods. The first time period particularly is right around the days of Ahaz. Pastor William last week, he described Ahaz uh, who is trying to save his hide. So he ransacks the temple and he pulls all of the precious jewels. He plunders God's temple and offers it as tribute to the king of Assyria. And in doing so, Ahaz effectively ends the Davidic line of kings. It's either happening then or it's happening several years later when another Assyrian king, repeat this name after me, say Sennacherib. One more time, Sennacherib. I thought about naming my son Sennacherib and Courtney wouldn't let me. Sennacherib is an incredibly haughty and prideful man. He is a man who is strong with a strong army and a strong military might, he himself knows that it won't take much to conquer Israel. And yet there's one man standing in his way and that man is Hezekiah. And as Hezekiah is looking around at the forests of the Assyrians, he cries out to God at what is sure to be defeat. And God, through Isaiah, gives a prophecy. Look at verse 33. Here is what God promises. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. This forest of the Assyrian army, God, I will take an axe and I will lay it low. This is after eight chapters earlier, God promises to use Assyria as an axe to cut down Israel. Now, hold on, we got to back it up and flip it and reverse it and understand, hear me now, that God will often use pagan, godless, unholy nations as instruments in his hands to discipline his people. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God using pagan, unholy, godless people as a instrument in his hands so that he might wake his people up. So here's Assyria. And God says, I'm going to use Assyria like an ax to chop down the tree of Israel and the tree of David. But as God is a God of judgment, he's also a God of hope. And he says that I'm going to lop the bowels of Assyria with terrifying power. He says this, he says, your pride, Assyria, you've puffed yourself up. You've thought yourselves mighty. And yet you forgot that I was the one who put you here. And he says, I'm going to take my ax. I'm going to lop you down. 
And just before us, Hezekiah's uh, Sennacherib is coming to conquer Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is bunkered down praying. They get to a small city called Nod, and God causes sickness to run through the Assyrian army, and they run tucking their tail away, God did in fact chasten and cut down the thickets of the forest of the axe, but he also put his axe blade to the trunk of the tree of David. Which means that when we get to the end of verse 34 of chapter 10, it is as bleak as it gets. This is a picture of hopelessness. It is a picture of darkness. And it's a reminder, friends, that God will not be mocked. And then chapter 11, in the midst of this darkness acts like a moonbeam. In the darkest of night, the clouds part, a beam of light shines through, and in a land that has been laid waste, there is a shoot from a stump. And there is, friends, here, a silent teacher. There is here an instructor who does not speak, but invites us to live her lesson. There is a tutor here, if you will, that takes center stage in our both Advent season and in the text. This teacher goes by the name of waiting. Waiting. And she invites us to wait with expectation. Pastor Jason, what in the world are you talking about? Just hang in there with me. I need you to hop in the car, buckle your seatbelt, put some good music on because we got a ride to take. I want to give you the main point of my time with you this morning. It's very simple and it is as follows. Friends, take joy in your expectant waiting on Jesus. Take joy in your expected waiting on Jesus. One more time. Take joy in your expected waiting on Jesus. I got a couple points for us this morning. I'm not going to be up here long. Uh, Famous last words. Uh, 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 But my first point this morning is what we get when we open up Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, is we get a spirit-empowered king. A spirit-empowered king. Now, now, there's a couple things that we need to understand from verse 1, Okay. Um, When Isaiah prophesies that there's going to be a shoot, where is that shoot located? In a stump. And who does the stump belong to? Jesse. And it says from its roots will come a shoot. Now, it's odd that it says that it's coming from Jesse and not from David. Is it not? You, you would expect the shoot to come from the Davidic line. But here's how bleak and hopeless things are. God's done with the Davidic line. He's lopped it off. After Ahaz, he's done. And it says that he, uh, the shoot's going to come from Jesse. Now, if you remember Jesse, Jesse was not a rich man. He was not royalty. He was a very pastoral, normal man. 
So the kingly royal line of David has descended so far into debauchery that God goes back to the roots of Jesse, signaling that this shoot's going to come from a humble estate, that this shoot's going to come from a simple place, that this shoot's going to come from the little man. When all of God's kings forgot who they were, they became haughty and puffed up. This shoot would come from humble beginnings, and this shoot would have the fullness of the Spirit. In verse 2, we see the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, briefly, we need to talk a little pneumatology. Pneumatology. P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneumatology. It is the study of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit acts differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. In the New Testament, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and he lives inside of professing believers. He indwells believers. But in the Old Testament, he filled believers. He didn't live there, which meant that the Spirit's presence could be given and it could be taken away. I wonder if you remember Saul when he offers strange fire on the altar of God and God's like, nope, my spirit's gone. Or what about Samson when Samson loses his mind? Oh, God, spirit's gone. And what about David? When David prays that great penitent prayer in Psalm 51, what does he pray? Lord, remove not your spirit from me. Why? Because the spirit of God came upon people to empower them for a task given by God. So you've got a man here, you've got a stump here, you've got a king here who the Spirit of God will rest on as the basis and the foundation of his kingly rule. And then we get three sets of couplets, wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. That first couplet, wisdom and understanding or wisdom and perception means that this king is going to look past the mask the facade, the superficiality, and he's going to see your heart. We look at the outer part, and we're looking at each other like, oh yeah, you good. Uh, You don't want to be with them. But this king, possessing the spirit of God and wisdom and perception, will be able to look to the heart. He will also have counsel and might. Because this king is wisdom, he will rule with perfect counsel and meek might. Meek might. In other words, this king won't use a hammer when a hug will do. And he won't use a bomb when a word will do. His reign will be characterized by an appropriate execution of strength. The picture of meekness, friends, is incredible strength under control. If you've ever seen a lioness on the African savanna, you know you don't want to mess with her. And the same jaws with which she uses to crunch the bones of gazelles and wildebeest and hyenas, those same jaws are used to transport newborn cubs. Immense might under control. This king will rule with might, with power, with control. And this third couplet, he will have knowledge in the fear of the Lord. Now, I wonder if you remember Proverbs 9.10, which says that the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
The fear of the Lord. Fear. Holy reverence. Holy respect. This king will not try to sidle up with God as if God is his chum. Nor will he regard the king of the universe as if he were like him. No, this king has a fear of the Lord. He understands that God is other, that he is the king of the universe, that Yahweh runs this. It is the fear of the Lord here that stands at the most contradistinction from the kings of Israel who believe themselves great and the kings of the world who believe themselves great. And every, just about every president that we've ever had in our history who believes themselves great and the fear of the Lord is not there. But this king, he understands that God is everything. If you were to imagine a menorah, you have a central stem and then you have candle arms that come out from each side. If the central stem is the spirit of God, then each of those candle arms represents wisdom and perception, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord that all produce a light that shines in the darkness. This king, this hope is meant to be a light in the darkness, parenthetically. Chapter 11 of Isaiah is the first time in the Bible that the narrative moves beyond the past, the present, or the near future and begins to look in the far future. The invitation here is to wait. Now, not only is this king perfect and spirit-empowered, but he's also, second point this morning, righteous, impartial, and joyful. Righteous, impartial, and joyful. Now, have you all ever read something in the Bible and you're like, I have no idea what that means? Or you read something and you're like, that sounds so wild. How could that actually be true? And the first part of chapter three, which remember when this was first written, there were no verse separations. So his, he has knowledge of the fear of the Lord. Then what's the very next line? His delight is in the fear of the Lord. What? His delight is in the fear of the Lord? Like my guy's exceedingly joyful to be afraid of God, to have a holy reverence and respect of God. What does that mean? In order to understand what that means, I've, I've got to sort of put some things in some language I can understand. Let me use a picture. Courtney and I, when we were in Yosemite just a few weeks ago, we would get up in the morning and drive up to Tunnel View as the sun is coming up over the Sierras. And the way that the light plays in Yosemite, it's, it's, a, it's a playground for light. It's an amusement park for light. There's shades of colors you've never seen before. And as the sun is coming up and this valley's getting illuminated by pinks and reds and oranges that you've never seen, all you can do is to stand in awe and realize that you are not that big. Nor are you important. And then you consider that the very rocks you lay your hands upon have been there since the foundation of the world that the last person to touch the inward parts of them was God himself. You immediately realize that you are in the presence of someone far more awful and far more terrible than you ever imagined. Reverence. And with tears in our eyes, we sing praises to God because our delight 
was in the fear of the Lord. And then the next day I took Courtney on an 11 mile hike to which she still hates me for. And we're hiking up this mountain and we're looking at all of this creation. And we get to the top of this mountain at the top of this waterfall and we look out and look into all creation and all we can think with tears running through our eyes is how great is God. You realize that all of the things that you become worried and concerned about pale into comparison with the magnanimity of this God that we serve. This king realizes that of all the kings, he's not the one. He has a king and he is joyful and he gets caught up and his delight is in the otherness, the grandness and the holiness of God. It is a delight to peer with wonder and ponder anew what the almighty can do. He's joyful and He's impartial. Notice the shift here in verse three. He moves from sort of this equipping of God into a characterization of his rule. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. We often refer to justice as being somewhat impaired. We might say that justice is what? Blind. And even in the pictures of justice from Greek mythology into courtrooms, justice has a blindfold on. Why? Because justice should not be tainted by the external appearances of those appearing to have a matter settled. But because this Messiah can peer and look into the heart, he will not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, He's not basing his judgment on he said, she said. Nor is he looking at us and saying, based on what we look like on the outside, that he will render judgment. Nor will it be because of our wealth or our status or our ethnicity. It will be based on the righteousness that the fear of God has produced in him. Now, this is really important because we, in order to fully understand this passage, we have to understand how the poor and the marginalized were treated in the ancient Near East. Dr. Thomas Constable, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, says it this way. He says, justice for the poor was hard to find in the ancient world because the poor could not afford to bribe their judges and they possessed little political influence. But Israel's coming king would do what was right for the poor and be fair with the afflicted. His words of judgment would result in the death of the wicked rather than giving them preferential treatment for what they could do for the judge. There is no bribing this judge. It ain't enough money in the world that can get you out of the judgment that he's bringing. And for all of us who are poor, who are poor in spirit, all of us who've experienced injustice, all of us who have been uh, discriminated against, all of us who've been held down, all of us who've been abandoned for the fatherless, for the widow, and for the orphan, God will not excuse or overlook the iniquity of the guilty. This king is a friend to the oppressed, those who are poor, and those who are weak. In other words, this king will trouble those who trouble you. 
this king will rule and he will do so because in God's theonomy or his theocracy, the tables are flipped. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. All of those who are at the bottom will be flipped to the top. Christ receives those who are poor and needy in material and in spirit to himself. It is a broken and contrite heart that God will receive. And for those who are proud, they need read only chapter 10, verse 33, when God, the almighty will lop off the bowels of all who are arrogant and prideful. And how will this king cut down the mighty and the proud? He will do so at the end of verse four. He will do so. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. My guy's not picking up a sword. My guy's not sending a missile. He's opening his mouth. I might start preaching. (laughs) When you consider the power of a word, I can only remember and think about creation. That when God said, be, the light raced from his vocal cords to its appointed place and sent a report back to God that said, hey, I made it. That light and all of creation itself obeyed a simple command that a word could create. And friends, a word can destroy. Now, this is good news. For all of those who are on the side of this king, for all of those who believe in this king, for all of those who are waiting for this king, this is a joyful word. But for all of those who are opposed to this king, friends, watch out because it gets worse because this king is not only spirit empowered, he's not only righteous, impartial, and his joy is in the delight of the fear of God. But third, he is a warrior king. He's girded up for battle in verse five with righteousness and faithfulness. Now, I learned something new this week and I learned about belt wrestling in the ancient Near East. That young men would get into these wrestling matches and they would put a belt on and they would grab the belt and they would wrestle each other based on the belt. Now, if the belt broke, you lost or someone would use the belt to pull you and toss you around. That's how you gain leverage. But when your belt came off, you were done. That activity became a metaphor for certain kings in the sense that this meant they were going to face opposition. They were going to face opposition and they were going to face enemies. This shoot, this king will face foes and he will face opposition, but his belt never comes undone. He is never bested. Righteousness and faithfulness are tried and true. In other words, this king is indefatigable. He can't be beat. And for those of us who are here in this room, we have the advantage of looking back And know that that king, that shoot from the root of Jesse has a name. And what is his name? Jesus. We we can look back and we can know that the fulfillment of this prophecy is in Jesus Christ. But friends, how does this text come to bear on our lives today? You see, there's a silent teacher here named Waiting that we must pay attention to. She's all throughout the Old Testament, and the invitation is constant for us. And when you consider that from the time that this prophecy was given until the birth of Jesus, it was 700 years. 
700 years. 700 years that God's people looked for this king, longed for this king, waited for this king. 700 years, which begs the question, friends, how long are you willing to wait? When I consider waiting, I think about Abraham and Sarah who were told by God that they'd have a son when Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65 and they waited 25 years for this promised son. And just when things got bleak, God revealed himself to be the one who keeps his word. That God is the one who turns a womb, a tomb into a womb. How long are you willing to wait? When Samuel shows up at David's house and asks for the little boy out back tending sheep, David's a young man between 10 and 15 years old, that he's the anointed king, and Israel has a king named Saul. So from the time that God anointed David to be king till the time that he arrived on his throne was some 30 years, 20 years, 20 Years. He's serving in the king's palace. He's doing all the things that he should be doing, waiting well. 20 years he waits to ascend the throne. Friends, how long are you willing to wait? And what about that man, Job? I love it. And what about Job? Job is a righteous man. He does everything right. We see God in chapter 1 speaking with Job. We see God in chapter two speaking with Satan. God speaks in chapter one. He speaks in chapter two, and then he doesn't speak again until chapter 38. And for 36 chapters, God is silent. He doesn't open his mouth. God, where are you? Why have you not spoken? What are you doing? Job's friends try to keep keep him company. Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. 36 chapters, he is silent. Someone in here might be ready to quit. You might be ready to throw in the towel and get up. Some of y'all are in chapter four and you've got 34 chapters to go. Some of y'all are in chapter 24 and you've got 14 chapters to go. But some of y'all are in chapter 37 and God is getting ready to speak. Friends, how long are you willing to wait 700 years between Isaiah 11 and Matthew 1. 700 years of a promise unfulfilled. 700 years of a dream deferred. 700 years of God seeming to renege on his promises. And then Mary's water breaks. And all of a sudden, all of the waiting makes sense. The invitation at Advent is not merely to wait on Jesus, but to do so with joy. We can take joy in our expected waiting on Jesus because, friends, we will not wait long. I'm about to get happy. (laughs) And when, when things get the most dark, we believers have an advantage in that we know how the story's gonna end. So, part of the hope that we have, that Pastor William talked about last week, part of the hope we have in knowing what's coming is that we can borrow the joy of tomorrow and live in it today. That's what hope is. Hope is borrowing the joy of tomorrow today. Can, can we just walk through a little joy this morning together? I, I, I just love the way the Bible fits itself together because there's so much about Isaiah 11 that's reinforced in Revelation 19. Look at this with me. 
Here's what John the Revelator says as he's looking at something that he can't quite describe, but he, get, he takes a, a crack at it and gives us his best shot. He says, then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called, what's he called? Faithful, true, and righteous. Where else have we seen the combination of faithfulness and righteousness? It's in the belt of the king who's coming out of the chute and the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11, 5. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. That means crown. That means this dude is G'd up from the feet up. He got crowns. He is on fleek that this is the king and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Crown him with many crowns. The Lord upon his throne. This is the king. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the word of God. In the beginning of John's prologue, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here we find the one that Genesis 1, John 1 speak of in the fulfillment of King Jesus. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Friends, this king has a posse. He is the commander of armies and all of them are riding clean. All of them are riding in power. All of them are coming to conquer. In Isaiah 11, the picture of righteousness and faithfulness and the belt that this king wears is the picture of a warrior king. Here he is. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his what? And with the of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Here it is. It is the power of the word of God. The same power that created all things, Christ will come and that will be the instrument he wields, which is a clue. I ain't got time to preach this, but what you hold in your hand is unimaginably powerful. And it is the only thing that will last from all of eternity. This thing existed before you. It's going to exist far after you. And it's the thing that Christ will come back wheeling a rod of iron. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And then here it goes. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written. Don't miss this. King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, Jesus is coming back with his name tattooed across his thigh with the moniker rightly given to him that he deserves. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, if that don't get you hype, I don't know if you're alive. <laughs> Friends, I don't know where you are. I don't know how you came into this place and I don't know what you're walking through. But there is joy that you can find today by knowing that whatever happens to you, that is our king and he's coming. They may, they may kill your body, but they cannot take your soul. And at the end of the day, Advent is a time where we say, yes, Lord Jesus, thank you. But come, Lord Jesus, haste the day when our faith be made sight, the sky be peeled back like a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Here is the invitation. The invitation in Advent is to look back and to look ahead, to look ahead at his coming. And there's joy to be found right now in the waiting. Last thing, and I'm done. Uh, when we lived in Birmingham, we had a house where the kitchen, the living room was all connected. And you could kind of run circles around the kitchen, the living room. There were stairs kind of in the middle. And when Charlie was a little girl, one of our favorite things to do when I got home from work was to play hide and seek. 
And she loved to run around and hide. Daddy, come find me. Daddy, come find me. And when it would be my time to hide, I would really hide. Like I would really hide. And sometimes when I would be running around and I would kind of, I would run around and I would duck up into the stairwell. And she's maybe two at this point. So all she's doing is running around in circles, just giggling. (laughs) Just giggling. And I'm sitting up in the stairwell and I'm watching her run. And I'm watching her try to find me. And then she starts to get frustrated because she can't find me. And then she starts to get angry because she can't find me. And then she starts to get really sad because she can't find me. And just when I know right before my daughter is getting ready to lose it, I pop out of the stairs and I scare the living daylights out of her. (laughs) And the squeal that comes from her voice is the most precious sound to my ears because it is pure delight. Friends, there is joy in the seeking There is joy in the finding, and there is joy in the waiting. How long will you wait? I want to close my time with you this morning by inviting you that whatever you felt this morning, whatever the Spirit's encouraging you to press into, I just want to give us some space and some time to do that. If you're here, maybe you've been looking for the Lord for a long time. Maybe you've been trying to chase him. Maybe you're trying to find him and maybe you're about ready to quit. My prayer is that you're in Job chapter 37. Don't quit. Hang on. God's getting ready to speak. But right now, what I want us to do is cast our mind to our present situation, but cast our mind ahead to the future at this coming of Christ Jesus to come and take us home. So we're going to take just a few moments here just to pray. And then I'm going to close us in prayer here in a moment. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we have great joy this morning knowing that the end has already been written. That our story is not over. And though we might be in process, there is hope and there is joy today. We may feel hemmed in on all sides, encroached upon on all sides, but there is a king who sees us and who comes to our aid. And Father, I pray that you would make our hearts glad. That you would make our hearts glad in the seeking in the finding and in the waiting this morning because you are coming back. You will return. And we will no longer sing, come thou expected Jesus. We will declare, here you are. We will no longer look and wait with constant expectation, but soon and very soon we are going to see the King. So as we sing our praises to you in response to your word, would you make our hearts glad in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, stand and sing with us here this morning.